Innalhamdulillah Nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'afiru Wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina Wa min sayyati amalina Min yahdihillahu falamudilla lah Wa min yudlil falahadiya lah Wa ashadu an la ilaha illallah Wahdahu la sharika lah وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله. Verily the praise belongs to Allah. We praise Him, seek His assistance and forgiveness, and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the evil consequences of our deeds. Whoever Allah guides, there is no one that can lead him astray, and whoever Allah leads astray, there is no one that can guide him. I bear witness that nothing deserves to be worshipped except Allah alone and that he has no partners or associates and I bear witness that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his slave servant and his messenger. This evening, bi-idhnillahi ta'ala with the approach of the month of Ramadan perhaps tonight may be the first night of the month of Ramadan or perhaps the month may be 30 days inshallah it will become clear soon with the approach of the month of Ramadan we have decided by the permission of Allah to begin the study of a new book the book of Hadith a Hadith Al-Ahkam the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that deals with the laws and the rules and regulations of Islam that was collected by the great scholar Al-Hafiz Ibn Hajar Al-Asqalani rahimahullah and he named that book Bulug Al-Maram Bulug Al-Maram the attainment or the achievement of the objective from the evidences min adillat al-ahkam from the evidences related to the ahkam, the rules and laws in Islam. Because of the approach of Ramadan, we have decided to begin with the book of Siyam, since it is appropriate that we should discuss fasting at this time. However, inshallah, we hope after Ramadan to continue with this book and to do some of the other chapters of it in the way that we will cover the hadith briefly from the book of fasting. Indeed, the month of Ramadan is a special time. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Qur'an, Shahru Ramadan, الذي أنزل فيه القرآن Hudan للناسي وبينات من الهدى والفرقان That the month of Ramadan is the month in which was revealed the Qur'an. The month of Ramadan, it was chosen by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is the one who creates and he is the one who chooses. And he is the one who has given preference to some months over other months. And some days over other days. And some creatures over other creatures. And so on. By his will. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he has chosen the month of Ramadan for the revelation of the Qur'an. The final revelation 
to humanity. That is the guidance of humanity in Yawm Qiyamah. Indeed, it is a special month. The one who fasts in this month, his previous sins would be forgiven. And the one who stands in the night in this month, his previous sins would be forgiven. And the one who stands one night in this month, Laylatul Qadr, his previous sins would be given. With the condition that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam made, من صام رمضان إيمانا واحتسابا غفر له ما تقدم من ذنبه That whoever fasts or whoever stands in the night in Ramadan إيمانا واحتسابا with إيمان and احتساب إيمان believing in Allah سبحانه وتعالى believing in Allah as it has been given to us in Islam from the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم to believe in him that he is the only one who deserves to be worshipped. That he is the only one who is entitled to the perfect name and divine characteristics and to offer every type of worship, ritual or otherwise, to him alone. وَحْتِسَابًا Hoping for his reward. Believing in him and doing that thing, hoping for his reward and believing that indeed when he has promised, he would fulfill his promise. Indeed, this is a special month. And we should take it seriously. We should enter this month repenting to Allah and supplicating to Him, asking for His tawfiq, that He give us success to complete these days of fasting and these nights of standing and the other good deeds, reading Qur'an and dhikr and dua, that are legislated in this time and in other times and that He give us the tawfiq or the success that when we complete the month of Ramadan that we continue with what we have been doing in Ramadan after Ramadan. Before we begin with the hadith of the book of fasting from Bulug al-Muram, I would like to briefly mention something about the author, the biography of the author, so that we will know who it is that has collected these hadith, who it is that has made the ruling that he has made concerning the authenticity or the absence of it for these hadith and who it is that has collected these particular hadith under these titles or headings so that we can appreciate the book if we know its author. And after the author, briefly, we can read what he himself has said in the introduction of his book about it. And after that, a brief summary of the main or the most important matters relating to Astiyam so that when we begin this month, we will already have a general picture of what is expected of us. And as we go through the book, inshallah, we will confirm by the proof from the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ what we will present in our summary. The full name of the famous Imam Al-Hafiz Ibn Hajar Al-Askalani is Abu Al-Fadl, Shihabuddin Ahmed Ibn Ali Ibn Muhammad, ابن محمد ابن أحمد الكناني الشافعي يعني الشافعي it was his مذهب in jurisprudence in fiqh ابن حاج الأسكلاني was born on the 10th of شعبان in the year 773 of the hijra of the hijra calendar يعني 773 years after the migration of the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم from مكة to Medina he was born in Egypt where he also grew up he memorized the Qur'an at the age of nine. 
He memorized the Quran. And this is something that if we haven't done it ourselves, at least try to get our children to memorize the Quran. Because it is the book of Allah, the speech of Allah. It is not like any other book. The scholars of the people of Sunnah said, the Quran is Kalamullah, Ghayra Makhluq. It is the speech of Allah Himself, the Lord of the world, and it is not created. He memorized the Quran at the age of nine, and he also memorized Al-Hawi and the book Mukhtasar of Ibn Al-Hajib and other books. He traveled to Mecca and listened to the teachings of its ulama. He admired the knowledge of hadith and began to acquire it from the great sheikhs of Hijaz, yani of the area around Mecca. Al-Sham, that which is today known as Syria, in Palestine, in Jordan, Egypt. And he stayed with Al-Zayn al-Iraqi for ten years. Al-Imam al-Iraqi, al-Hafiz al-Iraqi, he himself is considered to be one of the most outstanding scholars of the scholars of hadith. And Al-Hafiz ibn Hajj al-Asqalani studied with him for 10 years. 10 years with one teacher. He also studied under Al-Balqini and Ibn Al-Mulaqin and others. Many eminent sheikhs of his time approved his knowledge and allowed him to give religious verdicts, yani fatawa, and to teach even at an early age. He had learned the two sources, Al-Quran and Hadith, from Al-Izz ibn Jama'ah, Al-Lugha, the language, and Al-Arabiya, Arabic, from Al-Majd, Al-Fayruz, Abadi, and Al-Amari, literature and poetry from Al-Badr, Al-Mushtaqi, and writing from a group of teachers. He also recited some parts of the Qur'an in all the seven styles of recitation before Al-Sanufi. He occupied himself with the promotion of knowledge of hadith, and the spreading of the knowledge of hadith. So he dwelt in its study, in its study, teaching, writing, and giving fatawa. He also taught tafsir, interpretation of the Qur'an, hadith, fiqh, jurisprudence, and preached at many places like Al-Azhar, yani the Jami Al-Azhar, the University Al-Azhar, and Jami Al-Amr, and others. He also dictated to his students from his memory, many highly educated people and distinguished scholars traveled to him to acquire from his vast knowledge. Ibn Hajj al-Asqalani, rahimahullah, authored more than 150 books. More than 150 books. If we consider that the books that he has authored are not like this small book, Bulugum Maram, but some of them are volumes, volumes of books. 10, 15 volumes, each volume containing four or 500 pages. It doesn't mean he that he wrote 150 volumes of books, but each book might be 10 or 15 volumes. And he wrote more than 150 books. Most of them being in the studies of hadith. Which flourished during his lifetime. And the kings and princes exchanged them as gifts. And the kings and princes in that time used to attend to knowledge. They used to seek knowledge. And they used to consider as a gift, not a Rolls Royce or Mercedes Benz, but a book of knowledge of the hadith of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. His book, most worthy of mentioning, is Fath al-Bari, the commentary of Sahih al-Bukhari. In 12 volumes today, every volume more than 500 pages, the explanation of the Sahih al-Bukhari, which he started in the beginning of 1817 of the Hijrah, after finishing its introductory part in 1813, 
يعني the introduction to Fath al-Bari he uh, finished in 1813 and then he started the writing of the actual explanation of Sahih al-Bukhari in 1817 and he completed the whole commentary in Rajab of 1842 1842 huh? or oh, 842 he has been writing this book for how long? for a long time years and years and years he was compiling the explanation of the Sahih of al-Bukhari after the completion of the commentary he had a gathering attended by the Muslim dignitaries and spent 500 dinar on it then some king requested it and he requested his book Fath al-Bari the explanation of Sahih al-Bukhari and paid 300 dinar for a copy of it Ibn Hajj al-Asqalani rahimahullah became the Qadi of Egypt the judge and then Asham and also and then Asham was also added to his jurisdiction which he held for more than 21 years he was against holding the office of Qadi at first until the Sultan assigned him a special case then he accepted accepted to substitute for Al-Balqini when he begged him very much to preside for him as Qadi yani to sit in his place and then he substituted for others until he was assigned to hold the office of Chief Qadi on the 12th of Muharram in the year 1827 of the Hijrah. He then left, but had to return to the office of the Chief Qadi seven times, yani leaving and being forced to return again seven times, until he left it finally in the year 852 of the Hijrah, which is the year in which he died. As concerned his personality, Al-Hafiz Ibn Hajj al-Asqalani, rahimahullah, was humble, tolerant, patient, and enduring a real scholar who had the characteristics of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he was also described as being steadfast prudent ascetic selfless generous charitable and a person praying and fasting voluntarily and praying in the night praying everyone is praying but praying in the night and voluntary fast outside of ramadan on the other hand he was said to be used to making light jokes and telling and the telling of humorous rare stories he also had good manners in dealing with all the imams of the earlier generations and the later generations and he had respect for the earlier scholars as well as the later scholars and with all of those who sat with him whether old or young al-hafiz ibn ajil al-sarani rahimahullah died after the isha prayer on saturday the 8th of dhul-hijjah in the year 852 of the hijrah may allah reward him generously The biography of Al-Hafiz Ibn Hajj Al-Asqalani what we have read is a brief summary however the idea is to give some picture of the man who has collected these hadith that we want to study bi'ibnillahi ta'ala Al-Hafiz Ibn Hajj Al-Asqalani himself has written an introduction to his book in the beginning of Bulugh Muram which is 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 translated here he mentioned in the beginning the praise of Allah for his apparent and concealed bounties yani that which is seen and that which is unseen that which is obvious and that which we might not recognize that of the past as well as that of the present of all times and peace and blessings be upon his prophet and messenger Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam his family and companions radiyallahu anhum who spoke steadfastly in the path of serving Allah's religion and their followers yani those who came after them who inherited the knowledge yani the companions of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and their followers those who came after them the tabi'un who inherited the knowledge 
who are the ulama, or the heirs of the prophets. Yani those who inherit from the prophets are the ulama, because the prophets, they don't leave back inheritance of wealth or property, but what they leave behind is knowledge. So those who take the knowledge, they are the heirs. They are the heirs, the true heirs of the Prophet And then he said, and may they be honored. Yani those sahaba and tabi'een and those who inherited the knowledge, may they be, may they be honored. Whether they be warif, those who inherit, or mawruf, those who are inherited from. To proceed, then he said, after this, this is a concise book. A small book. It is not a comprehensive book. And it is summary. It is a concise book comprising the hadith evidence sources of the Sharia ruling. Yani the evidences that are the sources for making rulings in the deen of Allah, for the Sharia, which I have compiled meticulously. Yani he has meticulously searched and selected which hadith should he put in this small book from the thousands of hadith of the Prophet And he was one of the greatest scholars of all time. So what the hadith that he has selected indeed, it is of importance that he has selected these over others. He said, I have compiled meticulously so that the one who memorizes it excels among his peers. Whoever memorized this hadith, he would excel. It may assist the beginner student, like you and I, or the learned one, like the scholars who are seeking more knowledge. The learned ones who are seeking more knowledge may find it indispensable. And it is a help for the beginner. And it is also a necessity for the scholars who are seeking more knowledge. I have indicated at the end of every hadith. And here is the minhaj of Al-Hafid bin Hajj al-Asqalani in reference to the taqreej of the hadith or the mentioning of the sources where those hadith have come from. Not like the people of today who mention the Prophet ﷺ said something and they don't say where they have gotten it from. They don't mention whether it is authentic or is it weak. They just say the Prophet ﷺ have said. But he has made clear here what are the sources of the hadith that he has mentioned. Where did he take them from? And what are the grades of authenticity of the hadith that he mentioned? He used some terminology to indicate the sources that he has relied upon in order to abbreviate or to save himself from mentioning all of the names of every book that he has collected it from, if it is contained in more than one book. So he explains here those terminologies. I have indicated at the end of every hadith, the imam who collected it, in order to fulfill the trust to the Muslim ummah, and to fulfill the trust that is placed in the scholars, that you tell the people where you have taken it from, instead of saying that I am a scholar, whatever I say, just take it. No. You should give the proof of where you have gotten it from so that the people can feel uh, safe and they can feel secure with what you have offered them. Therefore, as-sab'a, the seven, when he says, rawahu as-sab'a, it is reported by as-sab'a, the seven, it stands for Ahmed, al-Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawood, and nasai al-Tirmidhi, and Ibn Majah. And it is seven great scholars of hadith. When he said as-sab'a, it means it is narrated by all of them. Al-Imam Ahmed, Al-Imam Al-Bukhari, and Muslim, Abu Dawood, Al-Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, and nasai When he said as-sab'a, he means all of them have narrated that hadith in their book. Every one of them has placed it in their book. He said, as-sitta, the sixth, stands for the rest, excluding Ahmed. Meaning, it stands for Bukhari and Muslim, Abu Dawood, Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, and nasai 
to the exclusion of Al-Imam Ahmed Rahimahumullah. Al-Khamsa, the five, stands for the rest, except Al-Bukhari and Muslim, meaning the seven excluding Al-Bukhari and Muslim, Ahmed, Abu Dawood, Al-Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, and Nasai, excluding Al-Bukhari and Muslim. Or I may say Al-Arba'a, the four, and Ahmed, meaning Abu Dawood, Al-Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, and Nasai, Al-Arba'a, and Ahmed. I mean by Al-Arba'a, the four, all except the first three. Yani except the first three, that is except Ahmed and Bukhari and Muslim. If he says Al-Four, he means the four except the first three, except Ahmed, Bukhari and Muslim. That means Abu Dawood, Al-Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah and Nasai, the Qutb al-Sunan al-Arba'a, the four famous books of Sunan. And by Al-Salatha, the three, I mean all except the first three and the last one. All except the first three, except Ahmed, Bukhari and Muslim. And the last one, Ibn Imaja. If he says at three, he means Abu Dawud, At-Tirmidhi, and Nasai. I mean by Al-Muttafiq alayhi, the agreed upon, that which is agreed upon, I mean by that Al-Bukhari and Muslim. And this is a general terminology that are used by the scholars of Hadith in general. Al-Muttafiqun alayhi, it means Al-Bukhari and Muslim. That these two have agreed on the authenticity of that Hadith, and that is the most authentic of Hadith, that which is agreed upon, as being authentic by Al-Bukhari and Muslim. And I might not mention with them anyone else. Yani sometimes he will mention Muttafaqun Alay, and he won't mention anyone along with them, even though other scholars have collected that hadith. But when he said Muttafaqun Alay, it is sufficient. If Bukhari and Muslim have agreed on it, it doesn't matter who else have narrated it, because that is the highest level of authenticity. And whatever is besides these seven collectors is clear. That is clearly mentioned by name. Yani most of the hadith are from these seven books. If he has, if he has narrated a hadith that is not in these seven, he will mention them specifically by name. I have named it, this book, Bulug al-Maram, min adillat al-ahkam, attainment of the objective, or achievement of the objective, according to evidence of the ordinances. Yani the evidences of the ordinances, it means the dalil, the proofs of al-ahkam, the, the laws or ruling in Islam. And I pray to Allah not to render what we have learned a calamity against us, but may He guide us to act according to what pleases Him, the glorified and exalted one. It is also worth mentioning, before going on to the brief summary of the Ahkam of Al-Siyam, that Al-Hafiz ibn Hajj al-Asqalani, he has discussed in some of these hadith, which are not from Al-Bukhari or Muslim, he has discussed or mentioned terminology that indicate what he wants to, how he wants to describe that hadith. So it is important for us to make a note of these terminologies. It is what is studied in the science of hadith called Al-Mustalah. Al-Mustalah, Mustalah al-Hadith the technical terminologies of hadith. Sometimes he will say a hadith is marfu'un, means it is attributed to the Prophet ﷺ. Or he will say it is mawqufun, uh, meaning that it is attributed to a sahabi, not, going, not being attributed as a statement of the Prophet ﷺ. Or he will say it is munqati'ah, meaning it has a broken chain, or it is mursal, or it is mu'allaq, and so on. These terminologies, Ta'ala, we will try to prepare a summary of them and give them to you in the following lecture. 
so that you can be aware as we go through them of the real meanings of these terminologies. Otherwise, as we go through the hadith, we will mention each one of those words and its meaning as we go along so that perhaps, inshallah, we become familiar with them. Before taking the first hadith from the book, as I said, we wanted to mention due to the necessity, especially for those amongst us. There are amongst us some of our brothers or sisters who are new Muslims who may be fasting for the first time this year. So we thought, and as a reminder to those who have been fasting for many years, we thought that it is worth mentioning a summary of the rules and regulations and important matters related to Siyam. So I have taken a small essay, Nubas Fi Siyam, a brief glimpse or a taken, a brief matter from Siyam, some brevity or a touch of what is related to Siyam from Fadilat al-Sheikh Muhammad ibn Sali al-Uthaymeen rahimahullah, may Allah have mercy upon him. And he began this essay by saying Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wassalatu wassalamu ala nabiyyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Wabad He said this is just a summary or a glimpse of al-siyam and the rulings or wisdoms and types of the, the classifications of the people related to al-siyam and the things that nullify siyam and other benefits that I have summarized in this brief essay. The first thing he said is the definition of al-siyam. Al-siyam, it is al-ta'abud lillahi ta'ala. Yani the worship of, it is an act that is intended as a worship for Allah the Most High. Bitark al-mufattirat, by abandoning those things which nullify the fast. Min tulu'i al-fajr ila ghurub al-shams. From the break of dawn until the setting of the sun. Yani it is an act of worship that is done with the niyyah or the intention that it is for Allah alone. And that act of worship is abstaining from whatever invalidates the fast. From the break of dawn, not from sunrise, from dawn until sunset. This is the definition of fasting. Then he said, Concerning fasting and its status, he said, fasting the month of Ramadan is one of the pillars of Islam, one of the great pillars of Islam, based on the saying of the Prophet ﷺ, that Islam is built on five, five pillars. Shahadati an la ilaha illallah wa anna Muhammad Rasulullah, wa iqami salat wa ita zakat wa sumi Ramadan, wa hajjil bayt al-haram. That these five pillars, they are the testimony that nothing deserves to be worshipped except Allah, and that Muhammad ﷺ is the messenger of Allah and the establishment of the prayers and the payment of zakat and fasting in Ramadan and hajj to the sacred house. The classifications of the people concerning Siyam. He said that Saum is obligatory on every Muslim, Balig, yani adult who reached the age of puberty, Akil, sane person who has control of his senses, Qadir, the one who is able to fast, and uh, Mukim, the one who is resident, yani in his place of residence. Uh, fasting is obligatory on the people who fulfill these five conditions. Muslim, Aqil, Balid, uh, Mukim, and Qadir. The Muslim who is sane, who has reached the age of puberty, who is resident, and who is able, who is able to fast. Therefore, the disbeliever, he doesn't fast. It is not obligatory on him even to make up the fast if he entered into Islam. Yani whatever he didn't fast in his time of kufr, there is no blame on him. The young person who hasn't reached puberty, it is not obligatory on him to fast. However, it is better to 
order him or to encourage him to fast so that he will get used to fasting before it becomes obligatory. The insane person, it is not obligatory on that person to fast, nor to feed someone on their behalf, even if they were an elderly person. I mean, even if they were of the age of puberty and irresponsible. But if they are not in control of their senses, then it is not obligatory for them to fast, nor to expiate for them by feeding a poor person. And this includes all of those people who, uh, whether through old age or senility or otherwise, are not able to distinguish between right and wrong. Likewise, the one who is incapable of fasting uh, all the time, and who is continuously incapable of fasting due to elderly, to old age, or due to sickness, from which they don't expect to recover, sickness from which they don't expect to recover, then that person should feed one poor person for every day that they don't fast. The sick person who has a passing illness from which they expect recovery, they are allowed to break the fast. If it is difficult for them to fast, however, they have to make up for the days that they have missed once they recover. The pregnant woman and breastfeeding woman, if it is difficult for them to fast because of the pregnancy or breastfeeding the child, or if they feared for some harm to come to their child, then they should break the fast and they have to make up the days when it is easy for them to do so, when the fear of harm and coming to them or their children is removed. On this point, there is difference of opinion amongst the scholars, and the more correct opinion, and Allah knows best, is that the pregnant woman and breastfeeding woman is not required to make up the days that they have not fasted, if they were incapable of fasting due to pregnancy, but they have to feed a poor person, and the proofs concerning this are contained in the statements of Abdullah ibn Abbas, and Abdul ibn Umar and other companions of the Prophet in the discussions concerning the difference of opinion concerning this issue. However, because it is an important issue, because there are many women who are unable to fast due to breastfeeding or pregnancy, it is important that we know that there is difference of opinion concerning this issue. And Allah knows best, but the more correct opinion is that they don't have to make up the days. If they are unable to fast, they are allowed to break the fast and feed a poor person. And that is the more correct opinion. Also, the woman who is experiencing uh, hayd or nifas, yani the woman who is experiencing uh, menses or postnatal bleeding, they are not allowed to fast in any case, but they have to make up the days which they have missed. The one who is forced to break his fast to save someone, yani to save another Muslim, for example, who was drowning or in a fire or something, and they were forced to break their fast in order to be able to uh, attend to that person, then they are allowed to break their fast and then they have to make up the day. The traveler, if he wills, he may fast. And if he wills, he may break his fast. And if he breaks the fast, he should make up the days that he has missed, no matter if he is traveling, yani, just occasionally, or he is, yani, for example, the one who goes for Umrah, or he is a constant traveler, such as uh, taxi drivers or truck drivers or people like this. That person, they may break the fast if they will, as long as they are not in their land. The person who is traveling, it is optional. And this is the correct opinion, not the opinion of those who said that the person who is traveling must break his fast. It is a rukhsa, a permission that Allah has given, therefore you have to take it. That is not the correct opinion. It happened in the time of the Prophet ﷺ that they were traveling with him and some of the people were fasting and some were not fasting. And they said those who were fasting did not criticize those who were not fasting, nor did those who broke their fast speak against those who were fasting and the Prophet ﷺ allowed it. 
and there are authentic hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ said that whoever is traveling, if he wills to fast, he may fast, and if he wills to break his fast, he may break it. The things which invalidate the fast. Here the Shaykh makes a very important point. Not many books mention it, and for that reason, we should make a note of it. The Shaykh said, before mentioning those things which nullify the fast, and he mentioned them as eight, he said, and this is a principle that we should pay attention to. The fasting person does not invalidate his fast by taking something of those things which normally invalidate the fast, if he has done so forgetfully, or out of ignorance, or being compelled to do so. And whoever has eaten or drank, or done something, forgetfully, because he didn't remember, or unknowingly, because he didn't know about it, or under compulsion, being forced to do so, it does not invalidate his fast. It does not invalidate. The invalidators of fasting are for those who do so, consciously, knowingly, and willfully. And the Shaykh says, the proof for this is the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, رَبَّنَا لَا تُؤَاخِذْنَا O our Lord, do not hold against us what we have done if we have forgotten or if we have done so mistakenly. Those who who have done something forgetfully or mistakenly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as the Prophet mentioned in the authentic hadith concerning this ayat, that this supplication Allah has answered it. He said, I have done so. Whoever has done something, Forgetfully or mistakenly, Allah forgives it. He doesn't hold them against them. And the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, إِلَّا مَنْ أُقْرِهَا وَقَلْبُهُ مُتْمَئِنٌ بِالْإِيمَانِ Yani, that the one who goes into disbelief, then he will be punished, except the one who is forced to do so while his heart is satisfied with iman. Yani, the person who is compelled to make a statement of kufr, or to do an action of kufr, while he is forced to do so, but the iman is really in his heart then it's not held against him. And that is the proof that the one who is compelled to do something, then there's no blame on them. And likewise, the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, وَلَيْسَ عَلَيْكُمْ جُنَاحٌ أَخْطَعْتُمْ بِي And there's no blame on you in that which you have done mistakenly. وَلَكِنْ مَا تَعَمَّدَتْ قُلُوبُكُمْ But what is against you is that which your hearts have done intentionally. Intentionally. Then the shaykh says, so if anybody forgets, while he is fasting, and he eats or drinks, then it doesn't invalidate his fast, because he has done so forgetfully. And if anybody has eaten or drank, while he believes that the sun has set, and he's thinking that the sun has already set, mistakenly, mistakenly, or that the dawn has not yet broken, and he mistakenly thinking that it is not yet dawn, it didn't become clear to him. Whoever has done so, then his fast is not invalidated, because he has done so ignorantly, unknowingly. And whoever rinses his mouth, puts water in his mouth, rinsing the mouth like in wudu, and the water goes to his throat, unintentionally, it goes down his throat a little bit, unintentionally, then it doesn't invalidate his fast because he has not done so intentionally. However, the Prophet said, when he gave instructions about wudu, that a person should yubalik, he should Go to the extreme in making the water go down the throat when he is making wudu, illa khaim, except the one who is fasting. Because the one who is fasting should be careful and not go to the extreme because he fears that the water may go down his throat. Al-Mufattirat, 
Samania. He said that those things which invalidate the fast are eight, and they are number one, having sexual yani, relations with one's spouse. If this has taken place during the daylight hours of Ramadan from a fasting person, then it is obligatory on that person to fast. Yani, the fasting person who it is obligatory on him, then it is obligatory on him to make up that day, Al-Qadha. He has to make up the day that he has nullified by having sexual relations with one spouse. And likewise, kafara. He also has to do the expiation, which is the freeing of a slave. And if he is not able to do so, then fasting two consecutive months. And if he is not able to do so, then feeding 64 people. And he has to make up the day, and he also has to free a slave or fast for two consecutive months yani as a penalty for this violation of the fast which is the most severe violation of fasting likewise if there is any uh, seminal emission while a person is awake due to masturbation or due to having direct contact with one's spouse or kissing or hugging or such as that then this is also a violation of the fast which requires making up of the day only eating and drinking no matter if the person has eaten or drank that which is beneficial or that which is harmful, such as smoking cigarettes. This is a violation of the fast. Taking an injection that is used for nourishment, the injection that is the replacement for food for the one who is unable to eat, such an injection which allows the person to be free of need of taking food, then this also invalidates the fast because this comes under the meaning of eating and drinking because it is a replacement for eating and drinking. However, the injection which is not for nutrition, it doesn't break the fast even if the person takes that injection in the muscles or in the veins and even if they taste the taste of that medicine in their throat or if they don't taste it, it does not invalidate the fast. An injection or blood injection, blood transfusion, for the one who is fasting because he has lost blood uh, to replace the blood that he has lost this is also yani, a violation of the fast and a blood injection blood coming out of the yani, the, uh, the woman who is in the state of menses or in post childbirth uh, postnatal care bleeding that also is in and a nullification of the fast. If the woman was fasting and the menses came during the day, then that day is invalidated and that day has to be made up in addition to whatever days are the, for the continuation of the menses or the postnatal bleeding. Also, the sheikh, he says that the blood which is taken out due to cupping, al-hijama. The hijama, if it is performed on a fasting person, then this is also a violation or nullification of the fast. As for the blood which comes out any voluntarily like a nosebleed or something like this or pulling of a tooth then this does not invalidate the fast because this is not like al-hijama and it doesn't come under the title of hijama on this point al-hijama bloodletting or cupping there is also difference of opinion and as Ibn Shaheen rahimahullah said that the hadith concerning the nullification of the fast of the one who does hijama and the one who it is done to that hadith though it is sahih it is mansukh it is abrogated and we will discuss this in the hadith of Bulugh Muram. So the correct opinion is that al-hijama and Allah knows best does not invalidate the fast. Finally, he said intentionally vomiting, it invalidates the fast. However, the one who vomits unintentionally, yani against their will, 
then does not invalidate the fast. The Sheikh then says some fawaid or benefits. The first of them is that it is permissible for the fasting person to intend to fast while they are in a state of janaba, the junub person who is in state of janaba from having sexual relations with their spouse. That person in that condition, it is permissible for them to fast. If a person had sexual relations with their spouse in the night and they woke up and it was already dawn and they didn't take a bath before sleeping, it is not a prohibitive factor from fasting. It is permissible to fast in that condition. However, the person should take a bath immediately at that time in order to perform the Fajr prayer. Number two, he said it is obligatory on the woman when she becomes clean or free from menses or post-child birth bleeding in the month of Ramadan, when she comes, becomes free from that condition, if she becomes clean from that condition before the break of dawn, it is obligatory on her to fast that day, even if she had not taken a ghusl before the break of dawn. It is also permissible for the fasting person to remove the wisdom tooth or other teeth and also to treat their wounds if they have any wound in their body or to take eye, eye drops or nose drops and this does not break the fast even if they sense the taste of those drops in their throat. It is permissible for the fasting person to use a siwak or miswak and is a toothstick in the beginning of the day as well as in the end of the day. Some scholars said that using the miswak after zuhur is makru. But the Sheikh said that it is permissible to use it in the beginning of the day as well as in the end of the day and it is a sunnah for the fasting person just as it is a sunnah for the one who is not fasting. The Prophet ﷺ encouraged the use of the miswak and he didn't make any distinction for the fasting person or the one who is not fasting nor before zuhur or after it. Also, he said that it is permissible that somebody, due to severe heat or thirst, that they cool themselves down by pouring water over themselves or sitting under an air conditioner. There is no harm in doing so. It is permissible for a person to use an inhaler, yani that is used by an asthmatic patient, for example, to, use, to take that spray in their mouth in order to reduce the difficulty that they are experiencing, the difficulty in, ble- in breathing. It is permissible to use it. There is difference of opinion concerning this point. Allah knows best what is the correct opinion. It is permissible for the fasting person to wet their lips if they became dry or to rinse their mouth if it became dry as long as they don't make the water to go down to the throat while they are fasting. It is sunnah for the fasting person to delay the suhoor until just before the fajr, kubail al-fajr to delay the suhoor meal until just before the fajr. This is sunnah. And it is sunnah to delay the futur, the, the iftar, the breaking of the fast, immediately after the setting of the sun. I need to delay the suhoor until just before fajr. And to hasten the iftar immediately after sunset. And it is also sunnah to break the fast on fresh dates. But if that is not available on dry dates, and if that is not available then by taking some water. And if that is not available, then the person, uh, and if, if, if none of these are available, then any food that is halal, that is lawful, and if nothing is available, 
then the person should intend in their heart to break the fast at that moment, at the breaking, at the setting of the sun. If they had nothing to break their fast with, they should yanwi, make intention that they are breaking their fast until they find something to eat to break the fast with. It is sunnah for the fasting person to increase acts of obedience to Allah and to avoid all prohibited things yani while fasting just as it is while one is not fasting it is more so expected that one should increase in doing good deeds and avoiding that which is prohibited it is obligatory on the fasting person to stick to the obligatory duties and to avoid all forbidden things to pray the five prayers in their times and to perform them in the jama'ah, if he is from the people who are obligated to pray in jama'ah, the men. Uh, and to avoid lying and backbiting and cheating and interest transactions, yani riba, and every speech and every action that is prohibited. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, من لم يدع قول الزور والعمل به والجهل فَلَيْسَ لِلَّهِ حَاجَةِ فِي أَنْ يَدْعَ تَعَامُهُ وَشَرَابَهُ The Prophet ﷺ said that whoever doesn't leave off or abandon evil speech, false speech, and acting in accordance with it, and ignorance, then Allah has no need for that person to abandon their food and their drink. Yani the intention of abandoning food and drink which is lawful, is to train oneself to obey Allah. What is the benefit of abandoning the lawful food and drink and then engaging in that which is haram? Then the Prophet, then the Shaykh, he said, ending, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa sallallahu wa sallam ala nabiyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Because of the lateness of the time, we will stop here with what suffice with what the Shaykh has mentioned here and try to take the first hadith from Kitab al-Siyam, the book of fasting from Bulug al-Maram by al-Hafiz ibn Hajj al-Eskalani. The first hadith uh, from Kitab al-Siyam that al-Hafiz rahimahullah has mentioned is the hadith an Abi Hurayrata radiyallahu anhu amu Ramadan don't precede Ramadan by fasting a day or two days before Ramadan. Yani, it is not proper that one should fast on the 29th or the 30th of Sha'ban. Yani, to precede Ramadan by fasting a day before or two days before, the Prophet ﷺ said, don't do it. Except a person who used to fast, a particular fast. And he always used to fast, for example, on Monday or on Thursday. And the day before Ramadan, or two days before Ramadan, was a Monday or Thursday. Then it is permissible for him to fast. Because that one, he has not fasted anticipating Ramadan. But he has fasted his normal fast that he is normally fasting. Otherwise, it is not proper that we should anticipate Ramadan and fast a day or two days before Ramadan. This is prohibited. Uh, the discussion of this hadith is lengthy. However, what we intend to do, Allah Ta'ala, is just to mention the meanings of the hadith along with the important, obvious rulings or benefits that might be derived from it. Here, uh, we have relied upon some of the explanations of Bulugh Muram 
including مختصر الكلام على بلوغ مرام which is a very summarized version with a brief explanation of the hadith of بلوغ مرام and some mention of the rulings or legal points that are derived from it and we have also relied upon فتح العلام the شرح بلوغ مرام which is by a great scholar from India Sadiq Hassan rahimahullah who has summarized سوب للسلام Another, a earlier explanation of Bulugu Maram by a scholar from Yemen, Imam Al-Sanaani. Fatt al-Allam by Imam Sadiq Hassan from India. We have relied upon his explanation because he has summarized the earlier edition of Subh al-Salam and he has deleted from it many of the sayings that are from the madhahib of the Shia and the refutations of them in which there is no benefit for us. And he has also added some beneficial points that Yani, perhaps makes his book even easier for us to benefit from. So at the end of each hadith, we will mention some of the points that are derived from it. From this hadith, it is mentioned that fasting was made obligatory in the second year of the Hijrah. Actually, from this hadith, the first point that is derived from the text of the hadith is the prohibition of preceding Ramadan by fasting a day or two days as a means of taking precaution. Yani somebody thinks that perhaps tomorrow is Ramadan. Tomorrow is the 30th of Sha'aban. It could be Ramadan. So somebody says, well, I don't know if the moon has been sighted, but I'll just fast, taking precaution. Perhaps it is Ramadan. Perhaps it is not. This is wrong. This is wrong. Because the Prophet ﷺ ordered us to fast when you see the Hilal, and to break the fast when you see the Hilal. For that reason, if it is not sighted, then we don't fast. We don't have to take precautionary measures. But he has instructed us to fast when you see the moon. And if it is cloudy, count 30 days. Tomorrow will be the 30th. And then we will fast the following day. So it is prohibited to proceed the month of Ramadan by fasting a day or two as a means of taking precautions. However, it is permissible for the one who had the habit of fasting a particular day and that particular day fell on the last day before Ramadan. Yani the last day of Sha'aban then it is permissible for him to fast that day. The third point is the permissibility of saying Ramadan without adding to it the word Shahr. Yani it is not necessary that you have to say Shahr Ramadan. As some of the scholars have mentioned, it is prohibited to refer to the month uh, Ramadan without saying Shahr Ramadan because it, there is a weak hadith which is not authentic in which it is reported that Ramadan is one of the names of Allah. Therefore, we shouldn't say Ramadan, but we should say Shahr Ramadan. In fact, that hadith is weak, and therefore, it is permissible to refer to the month of Ramadan without saying the month, but just saying Ramadan, as is indicated in this hadith. Uh, the next hadith that he has mentioned here is the hadith from Ammar ibn Yasir, radiyallahu anhu, May Allah be pleased with him. He said, "Man sama al-yawma al-ladhi yashqu fihi fakad asa Abu al-Qasim sallallahu alaihi wasallam." He said that, "Man sama al-yawma al-ladhi yashqu fihi." Whoever fasts the day in which there is doubt, is it from Ramadan or not? Like the thirtieth of Shaaban, the moon has not been sighted. We are in doubt. Whoever fasts that day, fakad asa Abu al-Qasim. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Then that person has disobeyed Abu al-Qasim. That is the messenger of Allah. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
This hadith has been mentioned by Al-Bukhari. By the way, the previous hadith, I don't think I mentioned it, but it is Mustafaqun alayh. The first hadith it is reported by Al-Bukhari and Muslim. As for this hadith, Al-Hafiz ibn Hajj al-Asqalani says, ذَكَرَهُ Al-Bukhari تَعَلِيقًا وَوَصَلَهُ الْخَمْسَةُ وَصَحَّحَهُ ابْنِ خُزَيْمَةُ وَابْنِ حِبَّانِ ذَكَرَهُ Al-Bukhari تَعَلِيقًا Al-Imam Al-Bukhari rahimahullah mentioned this hadith مُعَلَّقًا That means he has mentioned the hadith without a complete chain. It means specifically that the chain has one or more narrators missing from the beginning of the chain. From the side of the narrator, that is Al-Bukhari, the collector of the hadith. Al-Bukhari has mentioned the hadith without mentioning the name of his shaykh. Or the name of his shaykh and his shaykh's shaykh. Yani mu'allaq, it means that the chain is broken from the beginning. From the one who has reported it. With one or more narratives being deleted. So Al-Bukhari has mentioned this hadith. Ta'aliqan means that the hadith doesn't have a complete chain. And normally a hadith that doesn't have a complete chain will be considered weak. Because we don't know who is missing. Is he reliable or unreliable? However, وَصَلَهُ الْخَمْسَ But the others, the khamsa, that is, those besides Al-Bukhari and Muslim, Ahmed, Abu Dawood, Al-Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, and Nasai, they have mentioned with a complete chain, a complete chain, not the broken chain that Bukhari has mentioned, وَصَحَّحَهُ Ibn Khuzayma wa Ibn Hibban, and the two great scholars of Hadith, Al-Imam Ibn Khuzayma, and Al-Imam ibn Hibban in their two books, Sahih, the Sahih ibn Khuzayma, and the Sahih ibn Hibban, they declared this hadith to be Sahih. And of the contemporary scholars, Shaykh al-Albani, rahimahullah, in Irwa al-Ghalil, has also declared this hadith to be Sahih, authentic. From this hadith, we know that it is prohibited to fast the day of doubt, Yawm al-Shaykh. It is prohibited to fast on the day of doubt. That is the 30th of Sha'ban. And this is the stronger opinion according to the Shari, the one who has can explained the, the hadith of Bulugh Muram first. The second point he said is that whoever, and this is a very important point, من عبد الله بما يخالف شرع الله بما يخالف شرع الله فقد عصى رسول الله وطبت العبادة يعني whoever worships Allah in a way that is in contradiction to the law of Allah, whoever worships Allah in a way that contradicts the Sharia, then that person has disobeyed the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and his worship is invalidated. Yani the Prophet وسلم, said in this hadith, whoever fasts the day of Shaykh, he has disobeyed Abu Qasim, he has disobeyed the Prophet of Allah Whoever does any worship that is in contradiction to the Qur'an or the Sunnah, in contradiction to the Sharia, then he has disobeyed the Messenger of Allah and his worship is invalidated. Because the condition for any good deed to be accepted is that it has to be with ikhlas, sincerely for the sake of Allah, and it has to be with al-mutaba'ah, yani following the legislation of the Messenger of Allah wasallam. The next hadith that he mentioned is the hadith of Ibn Umar رضي الله عنهما May Allah be pleased with him and his father. يعني عبد الله ابن عمر May Allah be pleased with him and his father Umar ibn al-Khattab رضي الله عنهما He said سمعت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول إذا رأيتموه فسوموا وإذا رأيتموه فأفتروا 
فإن غم عليكم فاقدروا له متفق عليه يعني he said Abdullah ibn Umar رضي الله عنهما he said that he heard he said I heard the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم saying that if you see it if you see the moon the hilal the new moon فصوموا then fast that is a command if the moon is sighted then you must fast وإذا رأيتموه فأفتروا and if you see it meaning in the end of the month then break your fast when you see the new moon فإن غم عليكم فاقدروا له and if it is cloudy so you cannot see the moon in the sky in the night at the breaking at the setting of the sun if it is cloudy and you cannot see it فاقدروا له then calculate it meaning calculate the number of days in the month if you don't see it on the night after the 29th then count the month as 30 days continue for one more day and then the next month will start after 30 this hadith is muttafaqun alayh that is agreed upon by al bukhari and muslim wali muslimin and also al imam muslim rahimahullah has another narration of the hadith in which he said fa in ughmiya alaykum faqduru lahu 30 this narration makes clear what he means in the earlier one faqduru lahu calculated in this narration he said if it is cloudy if it is unclear if you cannot see alaykum if it is yani if the sky is, is cloudy uh, 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 so that you cannot see فَقْدُرُوا لَهُ ثَلَاثِينَ Then calculate it as 30 days. يعني calculate the month as 30 days. وَلِلْبُخَارِي And also Bukhari has another narration. فَأَقْمِلُوا الْعِدَّةَ ثَلَاثِينَ Then complete the number. The number of days as 30. Inshallah, we'll just stop a moment for the adhan. And after the adhan, just complete this hadith and take any questions. There's any like that. There's another narration. Also reported in the Sahih al-Bukhari wa lahu fi hadith Abi Huraira. Yani not from Abdullah ibn Umar, but from Abu Huraira radhi Allahu anhu. Fa'akmilu iddata sha'bana thalathina. Yani also reported in the Sahih al-Bukhari from Abu Huraira radhi Allahu anhu that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam he said that if it is cloudy fa'akmilu al-iddah or iddata sha'bana thalathina. Then complete the number of sha'ban yani the number of days of sha'ban is 30 yani if the moon is sighted after the 29th day yani on the night preceding the 30th which is referred to as the night of the 30th because the night precedes the day according to the islamic sharia on the night of the 30th if the moon is not sighted then count sha'ban as 30 days tomorrow will be the 30th of sha'ban and we will fast the following day automatically If the moon is sighted tonight at this time in this uh, in this hour then tonight will be the first night of Ramadan because the night precedes the day and therefore we will pray tarawih after salat al-isha bi'izn Allah ta'ala if it is sighted normally within one hour uh, after the maghrib or, or some shortly after isha any some news may come from somewhere in the muslim land uh, if the moon has been sighted then we will begin the month bi'izn Allah ta'ala Concerning the ahkam or the rulings from these hadith, these two hadith, the hadith of Abdul ibn Umar and the hadith of Abu Huraira, رضي الله عنهم أجمعين, they said that the first ruling derived from it is the obligation of fasting Ramadan if the sighting of the hilal, the new moon, has been confirmed, or if 30 days have passed, يعني 30 days from Shaaban. If the moon has been sighted or 30 days are completed then it is obligatory to begin the fast of Ramadan. 
and it is also obligatory to break the fast with the confirmation of the sighting of the Hilal of Shawwal the month after Ramadan or the completion of 30 days of Ramadan. And it is obligatory to begin the fast and to end the fast with the confirmation of the sighting of the moon or with the completion of 30 days of Sha'aban to begin the fast or 30 days of Ramadan to end the fast. The third point, uh, I mean the second point he said that the sighting of the new moon, the Hilal, it is based upon or it is illegal, yani Musanid Shari, it is a legal Sharia basis for the rulings of fasting and the breaking of the fast. Therefore, one should not depend upon or rely upon al-hisab, yani calculation, astronomical calculation. The legal basis for beginning and ending the month in Islam from the Sharia, it is ru'yatil hilal, seeing the new moon, or counting 30 days. And there is no basis in the Sharia, Islamia, for the beginning or the ending of the month of fasting, or the performance of hajj, or other acts of worship, based on astronomical calculation, even if we are 1,000% sure that they are accurate. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who knows that one day people can calculate, he knows that from the beginning, he didn't make that as a means, but he made the way to uh, determine the acts of worship in Islam, something that is accessible to everyone, those who know astronomical calculations and those who don't, those who are learned and those who are illiterate, everybody can look in the sky equally and see. This is what Allah has legislated by His wisdom. And this is what we should follow. The third point, He said, that it is not a condition. It is not a condition for the beginning or ending of the month that the sighting of the moon should be by all of the people. And the Prophet ﷺ, He said, if you see it, if you see it, then fast. And if you see it, break the fast. It doesn't mean that all of the people have to see it. That is by agreement, by ijma' that it is not required that all people must see it. But what is required is that an individual, or two, according to some of the opinions of the scholars, who are reliable from amongst the Muslim, reliable, trustworthy person from amongst the Muslims, that they should see it. It is sufficient that one person report it. One, al-wahid al-adl, yani the person who is just and fair, whose integrity is known. Or two, according to the difference of opinion uh, in this matter. Yani some of the scholars said two. It is sufficient that one or two witnesses, and the, the clear opinion, Wallahu alam, is that it is one. Number four, he said that the seeing, or the ru'ya, the seeing of the moon in every land, necessitates all of the people of that land to follow it, to begin or to end the fast. If it is seen in any land, all people in that land are required and this is the stronger opinion according to the one who has explained these hadith. The issue of whether or not it is obligatory on all the Muslims in the world when the moon is sighted in any land, that is another question altogether. There is difference of opinion about it, and perhaps yani, if there is a chance at some point we may mention the discussion uh, of the International Fifth Committee concerning this matter, and some of the fatawa of some of the scholars would show us that, and Allah knows best, 
that the local sighting in any land or the international sighting which is sighted in any Muslim land by a trustworthy Muslim, whoever begins the fast based on either of these, both opinions are legitimate and have some basis. However, that which is more in spirit with the universality of Islam and the universality of the brotherhood of Islam and the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that all Muslims should fast together and end the fast together. And that is the opinion of those who said that a universal sighting, if it is legitimate and if it is confirmed that it is sufficient. In any case, some of the scholars had advised us that if there is difference of opinion in any country, the people should collect their scholars and let them discuss the issue, debate the issue, until they come to an agreement on either local sighting or international sighting. And whatever the scholars agree on, then the people have to follow it. And the people in that way, they can begin fasting together and end fasting together. However, sometimes the people of knowledge, due to their lack of sincerity, fail to agree with one another. Nobody wants to tolerate another person's opinion. It has to be my way only or no way. And this is what has divided the Muslims. The lack of tolerance of another opinion, especially when it is based on legitimate evidence from the Qur'an or the Sunnah. The fourth point that he says, uh, or the last point that he said, number five, that if anyone cites the new moon singly, yani, they, nobody else saw it but them, then they are required to fast. And this is the opinion of the four imams. Yani, even if their citing is not accepted by the imam or the Muslim ruler, then they are required to fast because they have seen the moon. As for the breaking of the fast, there is difference of opinion about it. If a person sees the moon and they are the only one who have seen it at the end of Ramadan and their, their sighting is not accepted by the Muslim ruler, there is difference of opinion. Must they break the fast or must they continue fasting with the people 30 days if they have sighted it on the 29th? The stronger opinion, according to some of the scholars, uh, is that that person should act in accordance with what they have seen, fasting and breaking the fast. Uh, however, it is better that they should not show what they are doing uh, so that they would avoid يعني, uh, the people being suspicious of them. يعني, if a person saw the moon in the beginning of the month or they saw it in the end of the month, based on what they have seen, he is saying that they should act on it and begin their fast or break their fast even if their witness, even if their testimony of sighting the moon is not accepted by the Muslim ruler. And Allah knows best. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. If there are any questions or comments or corrections from the brothers or from the sisters, uh, we can take it now. Uh, uh, as, for, as far as sexual relations with partners, does this mean intercourse or kissing is not permitted, or kissing is not permitted also? in the night. What is the ruling in the day or night? Yani, the meaning that the violation of the fast by sexual relations, it means uh, it doesn't mean uh, just kissing or hugging. It doesn't mean kissing or hugging. Kissing or hugging if it leads to ejaculation then it invalidates the fast. Otherwise it doesn't invalidate the fast. But actual sexual intercourse between a man and woman where the, the man uh, sexual organ enters the woman's sexual organ, this is what invalidates the fast and necessitates not only making up the day, but also freeing of a slave or fasting for two consecutive months uh, or feeding 60 people. Uh, this is in the daytime. As for in the night, it is permissible to 
for one to do whatever they like, what is lawful in Islam, with their spouse, without any prohibition. In the beginning of the fast, when it was made obligatory in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, in the beginning, uh, it was not allowed for a person to have sexual relations with their wife after they have broken the fast. If they slept and woke up in the night, it was not allowed. But that was abrogated later on, and therefore it is permissible to do what one will in the night after the breaking of the fast. Uh, also, another question came, a 70-year-old man with breathing difficulty, can he pay cash in lieu of fast? And is a person who is unable to fast, 70 years old or 60 or even 50, just one moment, um, due to whatever sickness they have, if they are unable to fast and it is a condition that they don't expect to recover from, then they may feed a, 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 a poor person for every day that they don't fast, not cash. They have to feed someone. If they feed at the end of the month, 30 people at one time, or they feed every day one person, it is all acceptable. But not giving money, because what is legislated here is fidyatun ta'amul miskeen. By the text of the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said it is fidya. The expiation is ta'amul miskeen, giving food to a poor person. And Allah knows that. Now. have asked the question about supplicating before breaking the fast and some people said that you should not supplicate before breaking the fast in any case the hadith concerning this the supplications for the fasting person are authentic and well known that of those whom the Prophet wasallam said whose supplication is accepted it is a fasting person until they break their fast and some of the hadith mention specifically some supplications which came from the Prophet ﷺ that should be said at the time of breaking the fast. However, the discussion concerning these hadith requires uh, some examination because there is difference of opinion concerning these hadith, these supplications. Uh, none of them have been agreed upon that they are authentic. However, some of them, some of the scholars have authenticated and others have declared to be weak. And it is a lengthy discussion. In any case, what is definitely confirmed by agreement is that of those people whose supplication is accepted by Allah, it is the fasting person until they break their fast. There is no question about this. As for the specific supplications that have been mentioned in some of the books of hadith, there is difference of opinion about them. Perhaps we will look at some of them in the discussion concerning them now. Is it permissible for a woman to postpone her menses, hate, until after Ramadan? There is difference of opinion amongst the contemporary scholars concerning this issue. Some of them have allowed it. In order that the woman would share with the rest of the Muslims the fast of Ramadan completely. However, some scholars have made a condition that the woman shouldn't do so unless she has a reliable, trustworthy Muslim doctor who is a practicing Muslim, who advises her that the uh, pills that she takes to postpone her menses will not be harmful to her. Some scholars have made this as a condition, while others have not allowed it because it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who has legislated, who has fixed in the nature of the woman that she will experience this menses and that it will come during Hajj or Ramadan. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa when he found Aisha radiallahu anha, said, 
during the days of Hajj, when her menses came and she couldn't complete the rites of Hajj, he told her, this is what has been written for the daughters of Adam. Allah has decreed this. Don't feel sad. Just go with it and accept it as Allah's decree. So there's difference of opinion about it. Whoever does it, some scholars have allowed it with the condition. And whoever accepts it and leaves those days and fasts after, then indeed Allah is the one who has legislated for, for them fasting and Allah is the one who has prohibited them from fasting and Allah is the one who has legislated that they make up the days later. It is from Allah. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Shadun la ilaha illa anta